Amen. Please take your seats. Good to see you here this afternoon. And um, I hope you're going to stay for this evening's service uh, with Claudio Fredson. We had a very powerful morning with him, the revivalist from Argentina. And they're experiencing a strong move of God, a fresh move of God, uh, right over there in Argentina. So we're, we're glad to have him for this evening. And uh, of course, if you're regular here, you'll know that today is the last in the series of the Sermon of the Mount. So I don't know if that's a ah uh, or a oh thank God. I don't know. I don't know. I depends. You're here, so maybe it's an ah. Uh. And uh, for the last four months or so, we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount that starts in Matthew chapter five and right through Matthew chapter seven. It's one of the most important pieces of scripture to study. I can't think of much more important than Jesus' sermon. The greatest sermon that was ever preached was the Sermon on the Mount. And yet, it is one of the most least understood scriptures in the New Testament. And if you've been involved in any of these um, Sermon on the Mount uh, teaching services, I think you'll agree that um, what we've been discovering together, things aren't just as, as they seem and one of the things we've said about the Sermon on the Mount is that it's important to study the whole sermon. And that's what we've been doing and seeing things in context and how one part of the Sermon of the Mount links to others. It's not just a series of throwaway uh, statements. And one of the great errors of uh, preaching and teaching today in respect to the Sermon on the Mount is the way that people will just pluck a verse or a passage out of the Sermon on the Mount without context and without realizing what it means, and it was never intended to be taught like that. And just to give you a, 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 a sort of like, well, I'll do that in a minute. I'll, uh, next Sunday, we start a new series, and um, this series will take us through October and November, and I've called it Beyond Death, What Happens to You After You Die, Beyond Death. And the reason I think this is an important subject is because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about what happens to you when you die. Well, and, and it's important that we consider these subjects, this subject because your time on earth, as the Bible says, is like a mist that comes in the morning. Like dew, you know, you walk out of your house and you see the dew. It's on your car maybe if you have a car or it's on the bus windows. But within an hour, it's as if it was never there. That's your life on earth. You might think you've been around a long time. You might think, and I hope that you do, you've got a lot of time left. And like so many people in the Western world today, we don't even think about death. We push it away. We don't want to think about death. In the Western world, when death comes, we want to shove it away as quickly as possible. I mean, in the Western world, you, you have like half an hour tops uh, at a crematorium. I remember doing one for a uh, non-Christian once, just out of being a f friend, and it was a horrible experience. A whole life, and you're in. It's like it's like being in a what, what do you call it? A uh, a factory. You know, as 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 one half hour finishes and one group pass, the next one are going through the doors while they're coming out the others, and that's your west for you. Uh, other cultures here know it's very different, but just don't want to think about death. Don't want to know. No, you need to think about death because Christianity is all about what happens when you die. <laughs> Paul says, if we're not raised from the dead, then we're to be pitied more than everyone because our faith is futile. No, Christianity is all about what happens when you die and how we should live our lives, the decisions that we should make on a daily basis and our career decisions and our future should all be determined by what happens after we die. And there's so much misunderstanding about what happens when we die. So many people think that everybody goes to heaven. Some people think it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe it sincerely. What is heaven? And uh, what, how do you get into heaven? Well, most of us know it's by grace here. I know that you're a well-taught crowd, but what about the rewards in heaven? What will life be like in heaven? Because the vast majority, I mean, uh, I even, I can't even, 99.999 recurring 
90% of your existence, more than that, even more than that, is going to be spent after you die. Because when you die, you don't cease to exist. Are you aware of that? You don't go into soul sleep. We'll look at that. You don't suddenly disappear. But you exist after you die. The question is, where will you exist? And we're going to look at the subject of hell. Hell. Jesus was the one that taught most on hell. Do you know that? So if Jesus taught most on hell, it was an important subject for him. But again, many people don't even believe in hell. Or they think that hell is just a short period of time before God takes people back into heaven. It's called universalism, that everybody will eventually be saved. You know, if everybody eventually is going to be saved, do you know what? I'll take my tie off. I'll resign my ministry because, quite frankly, I've got better things to do. There's other things to do. If we're all going to end up in heaven, I've got other things to do. I'll live a little bit more selfishly. I'll live a little bit because in the end, I'll be in there with you. No, when it comes down to it, there's a hell to shun and a heaven to gain. There is, human beings are immortal. And we're going to look at these things. We're going to look at the judgments that take place. There is a judgment for the believer. Of course, we've already been saved. That judgment's taken place. He who believes has already passed from judgment to life, John says. Once you believe, Jesus says, not guilty. But there's another judgment. There's a believer's judgment, which determines our rewards in heaven and our lifestyle in heaven. Do you know that there is hierarchy in heaven? Do you know that? There is hierarchy and levels of glory and, and levels of resurrection glory. What's it going to be like to have a resurrection body? What's it going to be like when Jesus returns to earth and we rule and reign with him? Well, those that overcome will rule and reign with him. What's to be gained in heaven? What's to be lost? Uh, all these questions. What's the new heavens and the new earth? You see, we've got it all wrong. We're focusing on life right now on the earth. Oh, and then heaven when, when we die. But really, we need to be living our life in the light of everything that we're doing, everything that we are existing. All of this is just the introduction to eternal existence. This is, just, this is literally just the curtain going up on our existence. This is, this is but a, a second in, in the divine plan of God. And how we act on earth will determine not only where we will go when we die, but how we will exist, the reward we will get, and the glory we will bring to God after we die forever. The things that you do in this world, which is a temporary world, but the things that you do in this temporary, tiny, small existence of 70, 80 years, the things that you do have eternal consequences. The decisions you make every day, oh, you say, well, that day... Everything you do has huge consequences for eternity. And so this is one of the most important subjects that I can think to teach in. There's so much false uh, hood out there that we're going to be addressing that in the, 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 the coming weeks. So next Sunday, uh, spread the word to those that you think may be interested. We're going to be looking at beyond death, what happens after you die in related subjects. But we're back here in the final part of the Sermon on the Mount. And I just want to give a little potted wander through the sermon in conclusion and then end up with some of the concluding remarks that are very powerful in chapter 7. Remember in chapter 5, we begin the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes, the Blesseds. The Blessed is this, the Blessed is that. And that the whole of the Sermon on the Mount is simply an expansion, an explanation of the person that lives the beatitude principles. You hear what I'm saying? So, blessed, let me read these again. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteous sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then everything in chapter 5, 6, and 7 is illustration, principles, examples of how a person 
who puts these character qualities above all things. These are the character qualities also called the fruit of the Spirit. How that person will live life in society, how this person will deal with conflict, how this person will deal with marriage, how this person will deal with prayer, how this person will live spiritually. And so you have the Beatitudes from chapter 5, verse 3 to 10. And then from chapter 5, verse 11 to 12, you have the reaction of the world to such an individual. And it's not one of applause, it's one of resistance and persecution. From chapter 5, verse 13 to 16, we see the function of a Christian in the world. What is this blessed person meant to do? We're meant to be salt and we're meant to be light in this world. This is the function of a spirit-filled believer. Because only a born-again, spirit-filled believer can have these beatitudes in their life. Because you have to be born again to be poor in spirit. So this is talking about the spirit-filled life. And then in chapter 5, verse 17 to 48, we see Jesus explaining a new righteousness that exceeds the law. And throughout that whole passage, 17 to 48, where very often Jesus says, You have heard it said to you, but I say, to you, I say unto you, this is talking about a righteousness that is not the righteousness of the Pharisees. And this is all up on the internet. You can go back and, and press on the series in the media thing, Sermon on the Mount. You can read, I mean, watch all the other ones at your leisure. But this, the, the, the uh, righteousness of the Pharisees was an outward righteousness. It was the way that other people thought you were holy. It was all external. Jesus said and summed up of the Pharisees, he said, you whitewash tombs. On the outside, you look so spiritual, but on the inside, you're dead man's bones. You see, to a, a Pharisee spirit, on the outside, they look impeccable in their religious following of God. But on the inside, where God sees, they're a mess. And so we follow that. Then in verse 6, sorry, chapter 6, we go into a whole chapter on walking and trusting in the Father. Having said, don't have an external righteousness alone, but have a righteousness that's of the heart. God's interested in soft hearts. Chapter 6 then goes into how to live spiritually. And again and again, your spiritual life is determined by your relationship with your Father. And... Uh, it's about trusting your Father. It's about doing the right thing, knowing that the Father, even when you do the right thing, you're not putting your trust in people to meet your need, but the Father. You deal with people to please your Father. When somebody slaps you on the right cheek, metaphorically, or if someone treats you badly, you don't treat evil with evil, but you say, what would you have me do, Father? How shall I respond, Father? You're in control, Father. Walking in the Father, with the Father frees you from having to manipulate and deal with things in an earthly, fleshly way. Also, true spirituality is what you do in the secret place. I've already said this. Your spirituality is not measured by how often you come to church what ministerial credential you have, or how you seem to other people. Your spirituality is where nobody sees but God. Nobody sees but God. You think about your life. Think about your life where nobody sees. The hidden areas. The things that you would, the last thing that you would want us to see. The last thing you would want in your life to be projected on the screen. And that is the level of your spirituality. Hit me like a brick when I... When they say, I thought, my God, I'm not judged by how, necessarily by how I treat others. Although, of course, that's very important. But, but God looks at the hidden things. And you're only as strong as your secret life. Hallelujah. And so walking and trusting the Father. And then we come to chapter 7. And, and uh, we've been looking at that. And that's where we're coming in for a landing. Uh, we looked at the beginning of chapter 7. Judge not that you will not be judged which was echoing the, the beatitude that uh, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And this judgment was not about the fact that sometimes we have to make decisions about situations. This is against judgmentalism and finger-pointing. Because if we are judgmental, if we are finger-pointing, if we are harsh with other people in thought, that is the measure that God will treat us. The way you treat others 
is the way that God will treat you. And it's funny, hard, harsh people, they always want mercy from God. But what about the way they treat others? I've had situations over the years where I've had to deal with people, um, bad leaders. And a bad leader is often very hard on the people below them. But when you pull them up, they want mercy, more room, more space. But God says, I will give you, according to how you treat others, I will treat you. So God does not all treat us. This idea that God treats everybody the same is wrong. God will be merciful to you in regard to how merciful you are to others. So some of us are receiving more mercy from God. Why? Because we're more merciful to others. But then moving on, this doesn't mean that we can't sit. Because if we never made a judgment about anything, we'd let people get away with everything. The house of God would fall into disrepute and decay. No, no. God says, um, don't give what's holy to dogs or cast your pearls before swine. And that's what we looked at. And that is a judgment, isn't it? To say to someone, you know, I'm not going to cast my pearl here because this person's like a dog or a swine. That's, that, that's a serious judgment. So when Jesus warns us against judgmentalism and pointing the finger, he's still telling us to be very discerning about those that are around us, you see. And then we have a whole section again, once again echoing that the Father is listening to your prayers. Ask, go to your Father to solve your problems. Don't try and manipulate the world around you. And then we come into uh, where I want to come in for a landing, and that's verse 12 through 25. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets, chapter 7, verse 12. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. This is called the golden rule. The golden rule. And uh, it goes along with such sayings as, love your neighbor as yourself. This is the law and the prophets. So if you love your neighbor as yourself, then you'll want them to benefit and prosper as much as yourself. And this is a major key. You could sum up the whole of the Sermon on the Mount's attitudes towards others is to do unto others as you would have them do to you. Whatever you would like men to do to you, do also to them. This is a great way to think about your relationships and what you're doing. Are you treating people as if you were in their situation, how you would like to treat them? This means that when you have to make judgments or disciplines or things like that, although you have to do those things, you do put yourself in their shoes. And you say, hey, if I was in their shoes, how would I want, how would I want to be treated? That doesn't mean you say, well, I'd like to be let, let off the hook. Well, Sometimes you have to apply righteousness, you know what I'm saying? But you can do that in the right manner. But I'm got, I don't really want to spend too much time on that, although we could spend weeks. It's verse 13 and onwards where we get some interesting and often misunderstood scriptures that I want to leave you with today. The first is, enter by the narrow gate, verse 13. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Enter the narrow gate. What is this talking about? Well, you have to realize, remember, this is one sermon. And so what we are actually now doing as we hit verse 12 and 13 is verse 12 is almost like a summary of everything that we should do when it comes to one another. And remember that uh, the epistle of John says, uh, don't say that you love God unless you can show that you love your brother. One of the things that God judges our spirituality on, one of the first things that God judges how spiritual we are is not how much you read your Bible, although, you know, read your Bible, that's for your benefit, not his. Not how much you pray or do pray, not how much you worship, but how much do you love others? You know, oh Lord, look how much I love you. I read my Bible, I pray, I worship, I do go to the conference. And God's saying, first thing I look at is how you treat other people. And so this verse 12 is, is summing up there. But verse 13 is coming into a landing now. Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad the way that leads to destruction. There are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. 
What does this mean? And what does it not mean? Well, let me tell you first what it does not mean. This is not talking about how to get saved. And often it's used in that way. It's not talking about how to get saved, how to have your sins forgiven, how to know that you're going to heaven after you die. It's not talking about that. Because how do you get to heaven? How do you get your sins forgiven? How do you know that you're going to heaven when you die? If I was to ask you to come on the platform one by one and take the microphone and say, how do you know? If you were to die tonight, how could you tell me that you would be going to heaven? What would you say? Because you're living a difficult life and you're going down a narrow path and, uh, and because you keep doing it, you're going to get life? No, you would say, because I believe Jesus died for me. You'd put all your eggs in the basket of Christ crucified and rose again, wouldn't you? Forever believes in his or her heart that Jesus is Lord and raised from the dead shall be saved. Salvation is a gift. It's a gift. Freely it's given. All you have to do is believe and you have received. Salvation is always a gift. The moment you try and earn something, it's no longer a gift, it's a work. And nobody can earn salvation except Christ who earned it for us all 2,000 years when he died on the cross. And so if you want to know why God will let you enter in his heaven, it's all because of Jesus. Nothing in my hand I bring, only to his cross I cling. So this, although it's often used in that sense, is not talking about being saved. And wouldn't that be a strange thing for Jesus to be talking about that when he is talking about being spirit-filled and how to live the spirit-filled life? This is the conclusion. This is a continuation. Everything that we have been learning from the Sermon on the Mount is a narrow way, isn't it? I mean, if you look at the principles, you have heard it said, uh, do not murder, but I say to you, anybody who's got anger in his heart has already committed murder. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I say to you, anybody that has lust in their heart, you know what I'm saying? Uh, all these things that the Lord has spoken to us about, don't do, do everything in public that people will look at you and applaud you. That's what the Pharisees do. Do it in secret. Return evil with good. This is the narrow way. This, if, if you have been going through uh, the Sermon on the Mount, it is a totally different way of living than the life that you would live apart from it. It is a totally different way of dealing with your circumstances, totally different way of dealing with people. It is a totally different way of life because it is the born-again, spirit-filled life. And you would say, well, isn't that what Christians live? No, it isn't. By and large, Christians do not live according to the principles of the Sermon on the Mount. The majority of Christians do not live consciously or even act unconsciously according to the principles of the Sermon on the Mount. On the contrary, when the pressure comes, they usually resort to worldly ways of dealing with things. It's true. So... The narrow way is followed by a very few, very few people attempt to live the Sermon on the Mount. There's very few, few Sermon on the Mount disciples that are trying to cultivate the beatitude fruits of the Spirit. That are applying what we've been applying for the last four months and are trying to apply it in their lives. Very, very, very few. It is a narrow path, a narrow path. The, and, and when it talks about the, the broad is the way that leads to destruction, but narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. What is destruction and what is life? Well, destruction here is not hell. Not hell. Because if it was down to us to walk a certain path and a very narrow one, you imagine the idea of a narrow path and on every side... You know, it's so narrow. A narrow path means you can't walk out. It's not a path through Hyde Park. You could have a very narrow path through Hyde Park, but you could walk off it all you like, couldn't you? This is talking about a narrow path, whereas if you step off it, you're in the water or you're off the cliff. This is a narrow path. And if this narrow path, if the destruction was hell, 
eternal hell, then who could walk it? Who, who in this place could walk that narrow path without slipping? I couldn't. I couldn't do it. I'd give up right now. I'll just slip. Why not? Because I'm going to slip sooner or later because I'm a human being. You know what I'm saying? So if this is the narrow path that leads to hell, goodbye. Let's finish right now. Let's not even bother going to the revival service because we're all finished. And if anybody says, not me, I can walk it, I refer you to Jesus' teaching on the Pharisees. So it does not mean hell. And when it says path, narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life, correspondingly, that does not mean heaven. Because then again, how many of you can get through, can walk such a narrow path that you can guarantee that the path will lead you to heaven. The way that you live, your actions, your holiness will qualify you to get into heaven. It's not talking about that at all. So what is it talking about? Well, it's talking about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is everything that God wants us to inherit. Everything that is available for us through the blessings of the cross to experience in this life and also in the life to come. The kingdom of God is joy. The kingdom of God is peace. The kingdom of God is the Holy Spirit's assurance in our lives. The kingdom of God is a close walk in the presence of the Father. The kingdom of God is the pleasure of the Spirit and the ungrieved Spirit in your life. And so... When we're talking about life, we're talking about this. Jesus said, I've come to give you life and life in abundance. So we're talking about the abundant life. You hear what I'm saying? The Zoe life as, as, as they talk about. And you can experience as much of the kingdom of the heaven on earth as you want. But if you really want to experience the blessing of God in your life, if you really want to be close to the Lord, if you really want Life after life, you're already born again. You've received life, you're born again. But if you want to experience more of that life on earth, then it's the narrow way. It's the difficult choices. Whoever wants to follow me, Jesus says, must lift up their, take up their cross daily. There is a dying to self that brings life. You hear what I'm talking about today? And so... If we want the precious things of the kingdom, we're going to have to walk the path of a disciple. If, if you want the best life that you can have on earth, be, become a disciple. It's a narrow path. It's a small gate. But if you travel by it, you will receive life. But those that just say, well, you know, whatever, I'm going to heaven, I'll just do whatever I want. Or I'm Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Now, the word for destruction here, I don't think it should be translated um, uh, destruction. It should be more translated as um, like useless or perish. It's, it's a useless life. Broad is the way that leads to a useless life. That's what it's talking about. The word is apolomai. It's the word we use for lost. You know when you hear about the lost, the lost sheep, the lost coin? It's the same word that's used here, lost. So to lose your life, to, to have a, a, a life of meaningless, there's many ways to go about doing that, isn't there? And the world shows us a million ways to waste. That's the word. It's not so much useless. More, te more technical, I couldn't remember it. Waste, that's the word, is the way that leads to waste, to waste your lives. And there's many who go by it, wasting their lives. When I look around at British society and the church, and I think, how many useful lives are there here? We're just wait. I don't mean you, but I'm speaking generally. We're just wasting our lives. We're just messing around, and the sands of time are falling, and the days are passing, and the weeks are passing, and the months are passing, and the 
Years are passing. And what have we done? And how have we lived? And what difference have we made to the kingdom? And how much of our life is actually counting for anything? And of course, living for your life is not living. Living for your life. Jesus says, he who or she who loses his or her life for my sake will gain it. And he who keeps his life will lose it. This is what this passage is talking about. You want life? You want life? Then give up your life. Put it in the hands of your father. Do you trust him enough to give him your life? People talking about, I, I haven't got time for church, haven't got time for cells, haven't got time for discipleship, haven't got time. I haven't, you haven't got time for God, friend. You don't have time for God. Oh, well, I'm a busy person. Oh, really? Busy making your life? Who gave you life? Every breath you take, every day you live is a gift of God. And he can take it away any moment he chooses. Every day, every moment you live is by the grace of God and the mercy of God. So who are you living for? Are you living for God or are you living for yourself? Because I tell you, if you live for yourself, you're going to be miserable. You're going to be miserable because you're on the broad path. And you think that path's going to give you pleasure, but the pleasure you're seeking is only the pleasure for a time. And it will come back and it will demand of you because there is a wage to sin. Now, you can enjoy sin for a small season, but it'll come back and it will destroy your life on this earth. Sin, sin will bring misery. And we know, those of us that have gone down those roots, that the pleasures of sin are not worth it. Not worth it. Not worth it. And there is a whole group of people out there whose lives Perilous, painful, hurting, useless. And it's all because the wages of sin have knocked on the door and come for the rent. You know what I'm talking about? But you follow the Lord and he says this, my burden is light. My yoke is light and I will give you rest. This is the best thing that we could ever do, follow the Lord. We're only here. We're only on earth for such a tiny, tiny season. And then we're going to die. Hey, in 50 years, how many of us will be sitting in this room today? If I was to say, Lord, just show us what this place would look like in 50 years. That's nothing. How many? And in 100 years, this place would be empty. It's nothing. And yet, not only to have the best life on earth should we follow the narrow way, the best quality of earth. You know, you say, well, I don't know. This narrow way seems painful. How's that fun? You tell an athlete that did all the training that got the gold medals. Was it tough? Yes. Was it hard? Yes. What time did you have to get up? Don't ask. What sort of pain did you go through? Excruciating. But you got the medal. Was it worth it? It was worth it. And you know what? I loved doing it because there was purpose in it. And uh, so the life is, this is talking about the kingdom of God. How much kingdom of God you can experience now and in the future. It's about the presence and the blessing of God. The real stuff, not the fake stuff. I'm not talking about fake charismatic promises. Oh, you're, you're all going to get blessed. You're all going to have fast cars. You're all going to have every, every house you want. Every luxury the world goes after, you're going to have. Just put a bit more in the offering. Do you know what? That's not Christianity. That's the opposite. I believe in prosperity. I believe in these things. But that's not the goal or the aim. That may be a byproduct, but the moment you start wanting housing, then you've lost it. You've missed it. You've missed it. It's just a, a Christianized version of paganism. Wide and broad is the way that leads to a wasted life. Hallelujah. This, this conclusion's tough, isn't it? But Jesus is saying, right, because we know, I've given you this sermon, Jesus is saying, I've given you all these sermon principles and attitudes, be attitudes and everything, and uh, and uh, it's a nice sermon and bye-bye. But he's saying, let me tell you something. In my conclusion, 
you better do what I say. This isn't just a nice sermon with some lovely inflated ideas. But this is the narrow way that I'm calling you to. This is what I'm expecting. And if you follow it, you're going to find life. But if you discard it and just go the broad way, then your life will be one of recurring misery. And then verse 15 is interesting. I like verse 15 because, again, people will take, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Now, you think, why on earth is he starting to talk about false prophets? Why would you do that at the end? Well, because he's saying, look, let me tell you how you judge whether someone is a true prophet, a true minister of God or not. You say, well, how, how do you judge? You take the principles of the Sermon on the Mount and you ask, number one is the prophet prophesying these types of things. So, whatever, you don't have to preach the Sermon on the Mount every week, but the attitudes, principles of the Sermon on the Mount are they in that minister's teaching, that prophet's prophesying? Is it part of their life if you know them personally? Are they seeking to follow those principles, teaching the similar principles? It doesn't have to be word by word, but in attitude. Are they showing the attitude of the Beatitudes? No one's perfect, but are they even, is that even on their agenda? Because here we see that the prophet comes to you in sheep clothings. What's that? It's external righteousness, isn't it? On the outside, appearance. It's only appearance. They appear religious. They appear from God. They look like sheep on the outside. But haven't we already said it's what's on the inside that matters? And on the inside, they're ravenous wolves. They're not even part of the flock. They're not goats in sheep clothing. A goat in sheep clothing, it's not going to really hurt the sheep, is it? It's just a bit odd. But a, a wolf in sheep's clothing is out to destroy, and it's out to feed on the sheep. A wolf, a wolf in sheep's clothing, the sheep exist for the wolf's benefit. Let's fatten up the sheep. And have a good feast. You're there for my benefit. But a shepherd is there for the sheep's benefit. <laughs> Jesus said, I lay down my life for my sheep. And so, how will you know them? You'll know them by their fruit. And what is their fruit? It's their fruit measured by the Sermon on the Mount. So, if you end up going to a church, or you, know, or you go to a church on a regular basis... Are the sort of things that come out of their pulpit over a series of time and, and the values of that ministry, they might not be perfect, nobody is, but are they the sort of values that you see in the Sermon on the Mount? Or are their values totally out of skew? I mean, for example, the Corinthian church, they were acting like wolves. They were biting and devouring one another. They, they were going after idols, men and women, and said, I'm following this person. And, and they had all the gifts of the Spirit, but, what, but they didn't have the Sermon on the Mount attitudes, did they? And Paul said, love, you need love. That's what's missing. And so this fruit, a good tree cannot bear fruit, nor can a bad tree bear fruit. By your fruits, will, you'll know them. So again, if you want to know if a prophet is real, then see how they treat people. Someone claims to be a prophet. How are they doing measured by the Sermon on the Mount? What about the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, etc.? Is, is that their fruit? This is showing us that the fruit, you see, the prophecy is not a fruit. Healing is not a fruit. 
A word of knowledge is not a fruit. A miracle is not a fruit. You're going to see people do miracles in Jesus' name. He's going to say, I never knew you. The gifts of the Spirit are not the fruit. But often in the history of Pentecostal charismatic life, the gifts have been treated as the fruit. So if I can dazzle you on this platform with some mighty words of knowledge, healings, miracles, prophecies, then people will look at that and say, that's the fruit. This is a man of God. That's his fruit. Yet, if I treat you badly in other ways, well, never mind. He's a man of God. Don't speak against him. But did you see the gifts? Yeah, you saw the gifts. You saw the gifts. The gifts are not the fruit. The fruit is your teaching, is your lifestyle, is the way that you deal with things. That's what your fruit is. What sort of fruit are you eating of the ministry of Kensington Temple? What does it give you? Is, is, it, is, is it just gifts and candy floss and chocolate and promises? Or is it a genuine call to discipleship with compassion and care and grace? You see, what comes out of the pulpit? What comes out of the ministry? What sort of books are coming out of the ministry? Is there a balance? Of course, we want blessing and that's part of the, the thing. But what's coming out? What is the fruit? The gifts are not the fruit. And so here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he's saying, look, you want to know if someone's coming, someone's a prophet, how are they shaping up? Do they look like somebody out of the Sermon on the Mount? Are they merciful? Are they uh, poor in spirit? Are they humble? We've looked at what humility is. It's not weakness, but it's knowing your need of God. Very interesting. And then verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in this day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, gifting, cast out demons, gifting, in your name, and done many wonders, gifting, in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me who practice lawlessness, now, in this passage, Jesus is talking about non-Christians. Because he is saying, I'm telling you how now, I want you to walk the narrow way to get the blessing. That's what he's saying. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. He who keeps his life from me will lose it. But here, and, that, and, and, and so we're going to walk the narrow way to enter the kingdom of heaven and its blessing and all that's available for us. It's our inheritance. It's like... Jesus saying, come on, are you going to come into the promised land? The promised land, that's life, that's blessing. The prom are you going to waste your life in the wilderness? That's what that passage is talking about. But then he's saying, look, I'm going to show you that the people that you should respect, the people that are prophets, they, they are the people of the Sermon on the Mount. And then here he says, look, I also want you to know, don't be dazzled by gifting alone. Thank God for gifting. I wish I had more of it, more miracles, more healings. I wish I would to God that I had more power to cast out demons, more power to prophesy, more powerful. I wish to God. It's like the anointing is like a drop compared to what's needed to break open this nation. I'm not against signs and wonders. But what he's saying is, look, there's going to be people. There's going to be false signs and wonders. It's the fruit that matters. And, and there's going to be people that come and they've done mighty works of power but they're not even Christians. I never knew them. It's not I knew them once, but I never knew them. Some people say that when uh, Jesus says, I never knew them, that he's using a, uh, uh, a, a phrase that was used in synagogues about people when they were excommunicated. They were part of the fellowship, and then they did something wrong. They were excommunicated, and, they, and part of the excommunication would be, we never knew you. In other words, it's as if. We never knew you. And I think that's an interesting uh, analogy, but, but Jesus isn't saying something he didn't mean. When Jesus says, I never knew you, he's not saying, well, I did know you, but I've chosen not to know you. When Jesus says, I never knew you, he means, I never knew you. You were never one of mine. You were never born again. And you do know that you do see these people that claim to be of God that aren't of God. I mean, you only have to look at 2 Peter chapter 2. 
2 Peter chapter 2 is full of people that were of us, but not with us, but not of us. Who, 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 who seemed to be Christians, but acted as though they were Christians, but in the end they weren't Christians. 2 Peter 2 says, but like dogs, they went back to their vomit. In other words, they never changed their nature. And like pigs, they went back. The thing about these people is that they were amongst us, but they're never born again. And in the end, their nature took them back. The pig nature, the dog nature, the unclean nature here. So here is a warning about those that come with gifting but don't have fruit, that don't value the things of Jesus, that don't preach the cross, that don't preach discipleship, that don't preach everything that we've just been reading. Jesus is saying, here's the Sermon on the Mount. And follow it. It's the narrow way and it's the best thing you could possibly do and you'll get life upon life. Follow it. And by the way, judge people by what I've just taught you. Judge people by what I've just taught you. Because there's many out there, who, but by, your, by their fruit, by this message, you will know them. By this message. Because there will be people that will do all kinds of seemingly miraculous things, but I didn't even know them. Like the seven sons of Sceva, who were casting out demons, and they were saying, uh, by Jesus, whom Paul preaches, we cast you out. And they cast out demons. You know that. That worked for a bit. Until they got to some big territorial spirits. We gave them a good kicking down the street. Jesus we know. Paul we know. But who the heck are you? We got authority over you. And gave them a good beating. And, I will, and then finally, what a wonderful way. So many people have never realized that from verse 24, it is the final conclusion. Of the Sermon on the Mount. We teach on it much. Whoever hears these sayings and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine, what sayings? The Sermon on the Mount. Everyone who hears the Sermon on the Mount and does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and when rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and it was, and great was its fall. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. When he came down from the mountain, great multitudes follow him. So can you see? Again, he's saying, do you know what? final thing I'd like to say to you in my Sermon on the Mount is this. If you put this into practice, not only will you get life, but you will stand. And when the trouble comes, your life won't have been wasted. Your obedience won't have been wasted. The storms are going to come. On all, We're living in the fallen world. Storms are going to come. Storms are going to come and have come and will come. If you want me to tell you today that you're not going to have any more storms, I would be lying to you. Storms are going to come. But what I can promise you is that if you begin to put the Sermon of the Mount into action, I can promise you this. The storm will come, the storm will leave, and you will remain strong. This is the secret. It's not a secret. I'm preaching it, but it seems to be a secret to so many people who don't even follow it, but... This is the secret to the non-wasted life. I mean, can you imagine, as I bring it to a close, the person that built their house on the sand, which is the broad way that leads to destruction and waste. What a waste of building. All that time, building that house on the wrong foundation. You see, some people sort of like look at this parable as if it's a little bit like, you know, the pigs and the wolves. You know, the pigs that built their house and one built it of straw, one built it of wood and one built it of brick. And the wolf comes, says, I'll huff and I'll puff and I'll blow your house down. And the person that built it of straw built it like in a day. And the person who, who did the wood built it in a week. But the person who dug the foundations and did that took him ages to build. And we often think, oh, that's a bit like the house on the sand. And that. I wonder, it doesn't say that the two houses, one house was a better quality than another, does it? It just says they built their houses. 
doesn't it? So it's not talking about the quality of the house. It's talking about what they built it on. So I, I, I'm happy with either interpretation, but I think it's a valid interpretation to say that these people worked hard, both hard at their own dwelling places, what they put their effort into, what they put their work into. And I'm, sh- I'm sure both houses were wonderful, beautiful, and so much effort had gone into them, but one was built on the totally wrong foundation. You can put all your energy into your work, all your energy into this, that, and the other, but friends, if you're not building on the foundation of the principles and illustrations of the Sermon on the Mount, if you're not saying, this has got to become my lifestyle, if you're not even thinking about it, you are building on sand. And when it all hits the fan, you're going to be all over the place, probably backslide, blame God. You're going to be out for the count, and you might not even recover And next time you do of anything of it, you'll be in heaven with the Lord because of the destruction. Great was the fall. But he's not asking for perfection. He's just asking. God is not asking you to to live the Sermon on the Mount perfectly. Please remember the grace message. He's just asking for an orientation. An orientation of your life. I'm not asking any of you to be perfect today. I'm just asking you to orientate your life towards the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. Let it become part of your lifestyle, and I guarantee you'll make mistakes. I guarantee you'll fail, but I also guarantee you'll get stronger and better, and the Holy Spirit will will work on you, and you will be strong. So I encourage you, if you're interested in this, it's not enough just to listen to one or two or even a series on the Sermon on the Mount, is it? I said to myself, what am I going to do after the Sermon on the Mount? He said, well, you're going to speak on what happens after you die. And I thought, yeah, but what am I going to do with the Sermon on the Mount? Now it's not part of my weekly focus. And I was a bit sorrowful, a bit concerned that when will I pick up the principles of the Sermon on the Mount again? What, in five, ten years when I teach it again? Oh, God. Can't have that. What I have to do is make the Sermon on the Mount part of my personal discipleship. And there's many ways of doing that. I've recommended R.T. Kendall's book on the Sermon on the Mount for those that want to go deeper. But one of the things that you can do is every so often, maybe part of, go to one of these series that we've done. I haven't taught this perfectly by any means, but I tell you what. I've brought it to your attention. We've covered it. And just going back over these will give you fresh food for thought. And the Holy Spirit will cause us to be founded on the rock. Amen. And our life's not going to be wasted. It's going to be used for the glory of God. See you next week when we start the series Beyond Death. Thank you.